This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frasier Productions. Welcome to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications. We're the leading woman-owned and woman-led advertising communications firm in Southern California. We specialize in changing behaviors and growing brands. Our goal is to positively impact our community and our society, and we work a lot with private sector and public sector clients. Most recently, we are doing communications with the LA Department of Public Health, helping Dr. Barbara Ferrer and the team convey the information about COVID-19 so that we can flatten the curve and minimize it, doing their social media, their press events, et cetera. And you know that we do work across traditional media all the way through digital and social media. But The Deciders is really an opportunity for me to feature leaders in their field, change agents, and talk about trends that are impacting our businesses and our lives so that we can be more informed, more cognizant, and more intentional with our work. Today, we are all experiencing the devastating effects of COVID-19 on our communities and on our economy. And I think we have seen America go through some very difficult times with racial injustice and a real reckoning related to systemic racism. I know in my case, I've become much more cognizant of this and deliberately working very hard to counter the racism I see in my industry and potentially in my business. But I think it has brought many questions to the fore. It's opened up uh, a real deep chasm and an opportunity to look at America. My guest today is a man who has done that in a very insightful way. Uh, this gentleman is a world-famous anthro anthropologist, ethnobotanist, and he's written an analysis of the impact of COVID-19 on America and the situation we're in. It's a piece called The Unraveling of America, How COVID-19 Signals the End of the American Error. It was published in Rolling Stone magazine, and it's touched off a large social media debate because its author, Wade Davis, is renowned. He's also the chair of culture and ecosystems at risk and professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia. He's also a National Geographic explorer and residence and author and photographer. Uh, his lifelong study of cultures make this, makes this analysis even more uh, pithy and, and insightful. Welcome to the show, Wade. We're delighted to have you. Thanks very much, Renee. Great to be with you. As a lifelong study of culture, you know, you, culture, you are a studier of culture. Your analysis of America makes it all the more striking. Um, and the title of the piece is very startling, The Unraveling of America. Uh, tell us how you came to that conclusion. What are the factors that have led to this piece? And talk about the essay, please. Well, you know, I, um, first of all, it's all, I've often been described since this piece went viral as the Canadian speaking of the United States, but I always want to remind people that I was born in Canada, but I was, became a naturalized American. I married an American. I raised my kids in the States. Um, my, my son-in-law right now is a, 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 an active participant in the U.S. military uh, serving overseas. My father-in-law was almost U.S. president. Um, I found my career in the States. I, I, I went to university in the States. I love the United States. I just love the United States of Walt Whitman and Abraham Lincoln. And that's my vision that drew me as a young boy to want and dream of being an American. 
And I think of this piece, critical as it may appear to be, particularly with that title, more like a love letter to the country. You know, when we have a family member uh, in crisis and we do an intervention, the first step is to hold a mirror to that in individual to show them just what they've become. And that, in a sense, is the first step in the path of rehabilitation. Um, the, the, the plagues have a strange way of of becoming inflection points in history, not always. I mean, obviously the Black Death in the, in the 14th century uh, wiped out half of Europe, transformed the economy, destroyed the medieval uh, system that had been in place for a thousand years. By contrast, the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, which killed millions of people, including my own grandfather who walked out on the streets in the morning and was dead by afternoon, didn't have such a profound impact in part because it happened in a world that was almost numb with death because of the First World War. Now, the other thing is like during the summer of Woodstock, when half a million kids swam around in the mud of, of a field in New York and took drugs, that summer a Hong Kong flu killed 100,000 people. And in Berlin, they were using subway stations to store the dead. The difference with COVID is that, you know, at a time when 2,000 Americans were dying a day, where Yoko was perfectly distilled in that wonderful article in the Irish Times when this journalist said, you know, over the years, America, in all of its glory, has provoked any number of emotions, good, bad, love, hate, whatever, but never before has it invoked pity. And as frontline workers urgently awaited the airlift of emergency supplies from, aid, uh, from China, in a sense, the hinge of history opened to the Chinese century, uh, to the Asian century. And the article, you know, it tries to sort of put this all in perspective. You know, I mean, you know, you know, cultures are always changing, always dancing with new possibilities of life. We will readily adapt to working at home, to having theaters shuttered, to have malls shut down, to to have airline travel become even more problematic than it always was. Right. Uh, the economic uh, challenges will obviously hover for some time when we realize that no nation state and all states together don't have the collective wealth to deal with the situation when the entire world shuts down. But short of a complete economic collapse, it does not appear to be happening, although we, it still remains on the edge. Yeah. Um, we, will, we will deal with it. But what has been just remarkable is the, in a sense, the reduction to tatters of the dream of American exceptionalism. You know, I, I write in the, the piece of what, I, I, I sort of outline the trajectory of America, and I point mm -hmm. out the obvious that, you know, kingdoms are born to die. You know, mm -hmm. um, the 15th century belonged to Portugal, the 16th to Spain, the 17th to the Dutch, the 18th to the French, the 19th to the British. It's amazing that the British Empire actually reached its greatest geographical extent in 1935, you know. But the amazing thing is that if you think about this, in 1940, um, America was a demilitarized society. Portugal and Bulgaria, even with Europe ablaze, had bigger armies. Within three years, we had 18 million men and women serving in uniform. The industrial might of America didn't just win a war, it literally saved civilization. Changed. Uh, 
Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, and the statistics in the article are modest compared to some of them. I mean, I note in the article, for example, that, you know, um, uh, we were pumping out B-24s by the hour, Liberty ships by the hour. The record for building a Liberty ship was four days, 29 hours and 17 minutes. Amazing. But, but you know, the, the Ford Motor Company in World War II produced more industrial output than Italy. Uh, and here's a great here's a great stat for everybody. For every five pounds of equipment, I mean everything, blood, bandages, bullets, food, gas, whatever, that the Japanese per capita got to a frontline troop, guess how many pounds we got to a soldier in the Pacific? No idea. Two, two tons. Two, two tons. tons every five pounds. For every five pounds they got, we wow. got two tons. Uh, this is and 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 so this industrial might literally together with russian blood save civilization and i mean that quite literally yeah. um and then in the wake of the war however we never stood down but the american uh, uh economic dominance four percent of the population controlling 50 percent of the world's economy making 90 percent of the world's cars right. allowed for a, a truce between labor and capital that gave us the middle class when I was a kid, lots of my friends' dads were working class men who, you know, with one salary could own a home, own a car, put their kids through good public schools. Mm -hmm. That world disappeared with globalization. Mm -hmm. And globalization is celebrated with iconic intensity, but every working man and woman knows that it's nothing more than capital on the prowl in search of cheap labor. Right. Exactly right. That's what we saw, right, as industries went to China and Indonesia and Vietnam. So you're, you're pointing out, of course, that we had a, an amazing rise and now we're seeing a decline of the empire. I mean, I'm not sure we can ever use the word empire for America, but certainly the, the military dominance of the United States is remarkable. You know, we have, we, to this day, we have uh, soldiers in 150 countries, as I said, including my own son-in-law. Um, since the 1970s, China has not once gone to war. We've never been at peace. We've spent since 2000 over $6 trillion on military adventures, money that could have gone into building the infrastructure of home. The Chinese have been doing precisely that. Poor schools more, and education, more, right? Look how they've educated everything. their workforce. Engineers, uh, doctors, etc. Money at a much greater rate than we have. Well, and also, I mean, the, 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 they've poured more concrete every three years than we poured in the 20th century. Wow. And meanwhile, let, and, and I go back to this idea of the mirror in the face of the patient, you know, mm -hmm. you know, you, you know, the, the, we often get nostalgic for the 1950s. Obviously, it was not a perfect time. Uh, uh, particularly for women, gay people, people of color, and so on. But there, there was a certain kind of uh, uh, commonality to the economic uh, uh, expansion. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the average CEO, like my father-in-law at Bell & Howell Company, he made maybe 20 times as much as a salaried staff member of his team. Today, the CEOs are making 400 times that of the you know, um, the, the, the economic inequities, 1% of the, the population controlling $30 trillion of assets, whereas the bottom half of the American society have more debt than assets. The three richest Americans have more money than the poorest 163 million people put together. And suddenly COVID comes along mm -hmm. and a nation that once spat out 
uh, beef 24s and Liberty ships by the hour couldn't manage to get together the basic swabs necessary for the treatment of the disease. A nation that say led the world in medical innovation that eliminated smallpox and polio had ha had huge percentage of its population denying the medical uh, legitimacy of vaccines and at the same time led by a president who was recommending the use of disinfectants. Um, you know, the, 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 a nation that celebrated the free flow of information, if you go right back to Benjamin Franklin, he said it was more important to have schools than to have democracy because without schools and education, you could have no democracy. democracy. A country that, that, that celebrated receiving the huddled masses of the world. Obviously, immigrants always had a problem. There was always conflict, but at least the societal ideal was that of the Statue of Liberty. Mm. And now we have more people in America favoring the construction of a wall around the southern border than welcoming the desperate mothers and children who come to that border. I know you talk about a sense of collective purpose and healing the bond. Uh, what, how do we get out of this? How do we change? How do we go back to the integrity of the I think, United States? I think the first thing one has to recognize is, is what went wrong and why. Mm -hmm. And one way you can do that is to look at nations where things went pretty well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a stunning fact that on July 30th, when the United States um, announced um, uh, 59,629 new cases of COVID, we here in British Columbia, now Canada is no perfect place, our healthcare system is by no means a perfect system, but that day in all of our hospitals, we had only five cases of COVID. Mm. Now Vancouver is like Boston, it's a major metropolitan area in mm -hmm. the state province. Uh, it's two hours up the road from Seattle where the epidemic began in the States. Right. We are an Asian city, we have dozens of flights normally coming in from Asia, right. logically we should have suffered extraordinarily. Mm. But we didn't because we came together and we have a healthcare system that in a sense is prime for this kind of collective crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a system that serves the collective, not the individual, and certainly not the private investor who views every um, uh, hospital to benefit every tier of the society. Um, um, social democracy does not mean socialism, and it doesn't, certainly doesn't mean communism light. It means a society in which the well-being of the collective is of, of critical importance. In the States, people have almost lost not just a sense of community, but the very idea of living in a society. It, you know, it feels from afar as if everybody has to fight for everything, that nothing is the right of anyone. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain the difference, you know, in Canada, we don't describe wealth as a currency accumulated by the lucky few, as much as the strength of relationships between people and the reciprocity that links all of us in common purpose. Now, how do you achieve that? You achieve it in some very simple ways. And let me use my allegory of the Safeway grocery store that I... That I love I, this story. This I is very different than the United States. No. Please share it. Well, I mean, when you, and, I, and don't, don't get me wrong, I love the United States. I, I love the madness of the United States. I love the opportunities of the United States. I am, you know, like every, uh, every American by inclination, I do what I think I want to do and need to do and only then ask for permission or whether it was possible. I get 
I get the wonderful, perfect dream of America, uh, and, and I revere it, and the world reveres it. That's still what makes America. That's the saving grace, the, the, the jewel in the heart of the, of the nation, is that is that indomitable spirit. But at the same time, when you go to get your groceries in the United States, in almost any place, including the, um, uh, the Midwest even, there's a kind of an economic, social, racial, educational class chasm between you and the checkout person, man or woman, that's very difficult to bridge. Mm-hmm. In Canada, and certainly in New Zealand, that chasm doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that you necessarily relate to that person as a peer. You may have more education. You may be more or less affluent. But there is a sense of common community, a wider community. And you get that sense because of three things that are immediate and obvious. You know that the checkout person gets a decent wage, a living wage, because of the unions that are still strong in Canada, whereas they've been eviscerated in the United States. You know, secondly, and equally importantly, that probably their kids go to the same local public schools as your kids go. And those schools in Canada and British Columbia are not funded by property taxes that favor the communities of the affluent and thus the kids of the affluent. They're funded by block grants from the Ministry of Education at the provincial level that makes sure that every child in British Columbia has the same resources at his or her disposal as they go through school. Mm-hmm. The third and the most powerful of the three is the fact that without doubt that checkout person knows that if their kids get sick, they will get exactly the same care as your kids and indeed the same care as that of the prime minister's kids. Now those three strands woven together become the fabric of social solidarity. One of the things that people always fail to understand in the States they talk about the Obama care system, where they talk about medical care as if it's strictly an insurance matter, as if it's a medical matter, but it's not. It's about fairness. It's about social solidarity. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that you don't feel the same tension in the air of Canada, again, not that it's a perfect place, but that takes away a lot of tension when you know your kids they get, I'll tell you a wonderful story, a wonderful story. My mom, when she was 85, got a headache at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Uh, she had had a serious aneurysm, and she was rushed to the hospital. And by 1 o'clock, she had neurosurgery with one of the best in the world. Wow. And, and by the time we raced out and found her, she was in the ICU recovering. And wow. in that same intensive care unit was a little sweet girl from Manitoba, from a farm family, surrounded by, I don't know, a dozen of her family members in that ICU. Now, my sister is a prominent lawyer, and I've done very well as a writer. My sister and I could readily have footed any bill they had presented to us if there had been a bill. But that farm family right beside us could have not done so. They would have faced a choice between the well-being of their child and bankruptcy. But in Canada, that is not a choice we believe is a civilized, a choice that anyone in a civilized country should have to make. Now, the fanciest hotel in Victoria, one of the Fairmonts, the, the old Empress Hotel, mm-hmm. has a rule that any Canadian family member who has a relative in an intensive care unit at any hospital in the city gets a free room. So wow. after this, when our both the, the, the nurses kicked us out, We all poured into our vehicles and we all drove back to that hotel together. Now, Karen and I would never have known that family 
right? They would have never known us. But we went into that bar and they were deep Christian people. They didn't even drink. So I bought apple juice all around. <laughs> and we all sat up, my, wife, my sister and I with a glass of beer, wine, and them with their apple juice. And we toasted not just the survival of our loved ones, but the country that made that possible. possible. And wow. that is a symbol of my country that I, I really do respect. And that's Canada. It's right. a great story. And I think you're right. It takes away attention and it, it creates a level of equality and appreciation for each other as a collective. You know, the key word is fairness. I mean, if you think about America, what's the one thing that people became embittered about during the Great Depression? It wasn't right. It wasn't fair. The banks collapsed. They took our money. It wasn't fair. The dust storms took away the you know, the land literally from the surface of the place my great-grandfather had farmed. You know what? People want fairness. And if you want to ask what will bring back the, the divide in America, I think it's when, you know, and, and it doesn't matter who wins in November, because, because it's likely that the Trump uh, regime will continue to provoke separation, if only out of spite. Uh, and even if the, if the Democrats win handily or if the Republicans are reelected, this divide, it will only be accentuated by the bitter fight in the coming two months. And that divide can only come back together when, when, when people feel they're living in a just society where they've got a chance. Yeah. I mean, right now in, 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 in America, things have gotten so bad that opioid uh, addiction death is the highest for, uh, source of mortality for people under 50. Americans consume two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs. Um, the, the, the only 6% of our homes have grandparents beneath the same roof as children. We celebrate slogans 24-7, implying the total dedication of the workplace at the expense of family. And then when we, uh, we wonder why the average American youth by 18 has spent two to three years watching video games and a computer monitor leading to an obesity epidemic amongst youth that even your own Joint Chiefs of Staff have written op-eds saying it's a national emergency. Right. What we need to do as we move forward is really make people understand what we now know to be the scientific truth, that race is an absolute fiction. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth. Right. We're all um, we share the same genetic endowment. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, we're all descendants, in fact, from the same handful of people who walked out of Africa some 65,000 years ago. Race is a fiction. It's, it, it has no meaning whatsoever. Artificial and, construct we've created. Total social construct. And, 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 uh, and, and we do have to address basic issues of economic injustice. People yeah. will never be satisfied if they don't think it's right, if it's not fair. And when people don't think it's fair, they inevitably find scapegoats. And that's not just in America, that's everywhere. It could have been the Jews in Europe for so many tragic human years. behavior and human nature. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that poor white people had going in the South, the only thing they had going is at least they were better than the blacks, right? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things, I mean, one of the things I think anthropology can help on is that, is that anthropology is just a lens onto culture. You know, mm -hmm. it, it sees without judging. It doesn't suspend judgment, but it says that, that it doesn't eliminate judgment, but it suspends judgment so that the judgments we're kind of morally obliged to make can be informed ones. And I think, you know, this is, you know, one of the 
ways we can we, we, we can attempt to move forward that because we will emerge from this covid crisis mm-hmm. and we will the economy will rebound but 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 what 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 signals the passing of the torch from america first of all if the article is right and prescient uh, I'd be the most disappointed person in the world. I want the article to be wrong. Be wrong, right? The end of the Amer- America is no time to gloat. It's no time to celebrate. If indeed, uh, and I've been criticized in the article for being anti-Chinese. I'm not anti-Chinese. I'm anti-Chinese communist totalitarian mm. rule. And when the pa- the torch does path to, to China under this regime, with its expanding militarism, with its treatment of ethnic groups, with its contempt for democracy, its contempt for agreements. Believe me, we will be nostalgic for the best years of the American century. But we can only have another American century if we look honestly in the mirror at what we've become and take some of the hard steps. And these aren't just steps of economic policy, political policy. They're steps of of, of solidarity, their step of love. It's not, you know, flag wrap patriotism is no match for compassion. Uh, yeah. Empathy and compassion. You're absolutely right. And we you know, have. Dave, we're, we're coming down to the end of the interview. I love talking with you, and this has been fascinating, but I'm afraid I have to. After end our discussion, I think your analogy of an intervention and putting a mirror on America is so true. You've really painted the picture of what where where we are now, but given us some hope for how we can turn back to collectivism and celebrate what we have in common. Uh, I also think you made a very good point about healthcare. If we could get universal healthcare, it really creates a common level of respect and appreciation for each other, as you said. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This has been Wade Davis, a well-known journalist, anthropologist, who has written a very, very provocative and, and stimulating piece in the Rolling Stone called The Unraveling of America. Thank you, Wade Davis, uh, a, a remarkable individual, journalist, writer, and anthropologist who's written this particularly provocative piece, The Unraveling America. He is also uh, launching a new book called Magdalena, River of Dreams, a book about the history of Columbia. This is the close of our show, The Deciders. As you know, I'm Renee Frazier, CEO of Frazier Communications. You can listen to this and other shows by going to FrazierCommunications.com, where we have them as podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Deciders. Have a safe week ahead. Please be sure to stay safe with COVID-19, wearing face masks, washing your hands regularly, and social distancing. Have a great week ahead. This is Dr. Muntu Davis, Los Angeles County Public Health Officer. Although anybody can become sick or die from COVID-19, studies show that the black community is at higher risk, as are people 65 years and older, people in nursing homes, and people with underlying health conditions. If you have to be outside, practice physical distancing. Keep six feet from others and wear a cloth face covering. Wash your hands often for at least 20 seconds. Let's keep our community safe, and to find health care, call 211. Brought to you by the L.A. County Department of Public Health. This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frazier Productions.